My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is RSA Garcia. RSA is a Trinbagonian speculative fiction author who lives in Trinidad and Tobago with her extended family, and as she says, too many cats and dogs. Her debut science fiction mystery novel, Lex Talionis, received a starred review from Publishers Weekly, a silver medal for, a silver medal for best sci-fi fantasy horror ebook from the Independent Publishers Award, and became an Amazon bestseller. She's also published some incredible short fiction, and one of those stories is a novella, Filia Eros Storge Agape Pragma, was a 2022 finalist for the Theodore Sturgeon Memorial Award and the Ignite Award for Best Novella. And that, uh, that novella serves as the heart of our conversation today. And if you uh, speak Greek, then you may notice the meaning of those words, Philia, Eros, Storge, Agape, and Pragma are all different kinds of love. And the novella explores that question of love and these different forms. The world of the novella is imbued with relationship, with family, with respect for tradition, but also a willingness to risk everything for a better future. And it draws on both historical realities from our world and richly imagined possibilities from RSA's incredible imagination. So I'm really excited for you to hear this one, and I hope that you leave here with a urge to read even more of her beautiful writing. So let's get settled in. <sighs> and hear what RSA has for us. Rhonda, welcome to the Wonder Dome. Thank you for having me, Andy. Oh, I'm so, so excited. We already were getting kind of silly and having fun before the recording, and I hope to bring in some of that energy here. Um, Definitely. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, it's going to go away. <laughs> I'll say just a word or two, and then I know you've brought some things to read, and we might not get through all of them, but I want to make sure that folks listening get to hear at least one or two of your pieces of, of work because uh, our our mutual dear friend Ray pointed me in your direction. And it wasn't until I uh, connected the dot that I realized I had already read one of your stories in Clark, Clark's World magazine called The Anchorite Wakes. Ah, yes. And, that was the first thing they ever bought from me. Ah, oh, it's so good and evocative. And I think, at least in my experience, I haven't read all of your work yet, but I've read a bit now. And it's sort of emblematic of 
the richness, the sort of tapestry that you work with in your writing around uh, identity and family and purpose and sort of the ways that we can be used by and, and the ways that we can use others to serve our ends and the ways that we can find ourselves in the midst of that. You just, you know, yeah. doing some beautiful, the themes of your writing are really evocative. And so I'm excited for people to hear that. And I, I wonder if maybe to start, we could actually just jump in with, with something that you'd want to read from one of your stories. Would that be all right? Thanks. Yeah, that would be absolutely all right. Okay. Uh, I've decided that probably the best thing to start with would be my novel, hmm. uh, which is called Lex Talionis. Uh, I wrote it, I was probably in the grips of a lot of anger and rage at the time. When I started it, I was only 14. And wow. yeah, don't let that impress you too much. I'm sorry, but I'm impressed. I was definitely not starting writing a novel at 14. I was reading novels at 14, which I'm proud of, but not. So I was a crazy person. I, I finished my first book when I was 10 because I started writing at eight because I had fallen mm. in love with Little Woman and Louisa May Alcott. And I read that she had been published in a newspaper when she was eight years old. And I was like, eight years old in the 1800s. I'm I'm slow. I'm lazy. I, I should get to work on this. So I started writing these ridiculous little, you know. I live just, by the way, I live just down the road from where she was born, actually. That so so that's awesome. kind of a cool connection. Oh yeah. my God, if you ever want to come so visit, I can, I can, I can take I will own. be there so fast. You will want to rescind that invitation. <laughs> <laughs> but sincerely, I, I put these things together in a little collection and I called it my novel and I passed it around in my class and my teacher went crazy on me <laughs> the class <laughs> we have exams coming up <laughs> but at the time when i wrote it i was i've had a bit of a i suppose people would say it was a traumatic childhood what writer hasn't though so it was about filling this gap in me about talking about things that are really difficult to talk about like sexual assault and mm. violence and its place in in society and i had this vision of a future where you could literally we could choose other things and go the other way you know what i mean mm -hmm. and so lex was really about this this young woman who is basically she dies and then is resurrected by a uh, alien who cannot speak mm -hmm. uh, in front of the doctor who could not save her and uh, she comes back with no memory but eventually realizes that regardless of that, there are people out there that are looking for her and she needs to remember mm. who she is and what really happened to her if she's going to have any chance of staying alive mm. a second time. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so nice. so it's, a, it's basically a space opera. And um, I thought I would just start from the beginning because, hey, we don't want to take too long. <laughs> Number one. And I'm one of those people who are like, really like starting in the middle mm. for some reason mm. it drives me nuts because i'm just like when i get to the middle part i'll be like oh i read this part <laughs> may as well just tell the audience how it starts brilliant right so chapter one uh, part one and it opens with the epigraph death is the breath between one life and the next message of the will book of the seven holies ancient dark scripture Death came for Michael while he slept. He woke, gasping and trembling, from a dream of being pushed out the airlock. His fingers were cold and numb. The weight of his head on his arm had cut off his circulation. Michael sat up, wiking sweaty strands of hair from over his forehead. 
shifting his feet out from under him. He cursed as pain lanced up his leg. Shit. Fell asleep. I can't sleep. How long was I out? Michael crawled along the vent to the grill that covered its entrance, stopping once to catch his breath. Despite having dozed, he was exhausted and cold. The air in the vent left a metallic taste in his dry mouth, and he couldn't stop shaking. The wound in his leg, which he'd bandaged with cloth ripped from his pants, made a white hot line down his shin. God, it hurts. If I don't find some meds soon. He had to figure out a way before he was incapable of going on or lost consciousness again, maybe for good. Michael pulled himself onto his knees, inching his way toward the harsh light that shone through the grill. Dust motes danced in the path of square patches of illumination. Then he heard it. Faint. A mere whisper. The brief sound of air being expelled from lungs. And it came from outside, from the corridor below the vent. Despite the fact that he was freezing, sweat broke out all over his body. Fuck, fuck. Please, no. Michael strained to hear, ignoring the pain in his wounded leg, which had become twisted beneath him. There was nothing but the impossibly loud sound of his own breathing. Seconds ticked by, then minutes. He blinked as sweat dripped into his eyes. Still nothing. Heart tripping, he decided he must have imagined it all. He began to shift his weight in a careful movement. Tap, tap, tap. All the air left his lungs. The grill wavered and darkened before his eyes. Tap, tap, tap. The sound came from right below him on the wall just under his hiding place. Tap, tap, tap. He recognized the rhythm. It had been centuries since anyone had used it on a military vessel but everyone had studied the same vids in their natural history hollow books during basic training. Tree short, tree long, tree short. SOS, save our souls. A cruel jibe. The only soul left to save was his, and the very thing he tried to escape stood right outside, mocking him with the ancient distress signal none of them, least of all him, would ever be able to send. The tapping stopped. Michael stared at the opening in front of him, seeing the grill being yanked off like paper as if it was already happening, seeing the light falling fully into the narrow vent, revealing him where he crouched, helpless and too terrified to move. Not that he would be able to escape even if he could. The silence pushed at his ears. The grill in front of him continued to filter the light into shapes on the inside of the vent. He waited. Certainly was a dead man wanting it to be over now because he was tired, so very tired. Eventually, it dawned on him that it would have been too silent for too long. It took a few more minutes before he worked up enough courage to make his way in front of the vent and look down to see the empty corridor stretching out on either side. After he opened the grill and slid down from his hiding place, his legs gave way below him and he crumpled to the floor. I'm still alive. I'm still alive. But not for long if he just sat there. He had to find medication. That meant medby. And the bridge. He shuddered, his mind shying away from the endless corridors that waited for him, lights flickering while darkness edged their walls. 
don't think, just go, go now. Leaning on the wall, Michael pushed himself to his feet. He started limping down the corridor, slow at first, then faster. The way to the bridge would be long and dangerous, and if he was right, he had very little time to get there. And I'll stop there for now. Mm. Oh my gosh. No, don't stop. <laughs> Dang it. Wow, that, oh, that little Why tidbit was a, a, a little kind of master class on how to, how to open and build tension right from the jump. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't read the novel yet, so I'm like sitting with like so many questions about we're on some kind of military vessel. There's some sort of, some sort of entity that's yep. dangerous, hunting yep. Michael and maybe other people. Like, it's like, okay, this is, the stakes are pretty high pretty quickly, it seems like. Oh, thank you. Yes, that is exactly what is going on. <laughs> um, I'm hoping a part, I mean, part of me would be like high five if you wrote that, that when you were 14. I'm hoping you didn't because then I'll be really like, all right, I'll really just throw up my hands and give up that if you managed to. Nah, that it's way. okay. That part came years <laughs> later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like By the time I wrote that opening, I had just joined the online writing workshop for science fiction, fantasy and horror. I was probably... 2021 mm. when mm. the novel as it is now really started to take shape because mm. i started off with some of the like with the characters uh, not michael but the main characters were there in the first draft and then i was like huh i don't know where i want to go with this because initially i was just this young girl who had seen alien <laughs> and ice pirates and was like you know what's awesome is that an alien the lady was the hero. I had never seen a female mm-hmm. hero in an action film mm-hmm. before that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, you know, it would be awesome if, a, if she had command of the vessel from the beginning. Man. Like, you know, what if, what if I built a world where, you know, the woman was actually in command of the vessel? What if, you know? So I started off yeah. with this idea about pirates and, you know, being led by a woman. And then it became something else entirely mm. because of, mm. you know, life experience, things that were happening mm. and around mm. me. And my life got kind of dark at that moment. And I was just like, you know what? This is one place I can let it out, talk about it, you know, mm. Um, mm. without getting into too much detail. I was attacked. Thankfully, I was not seriously hurt in any way. Um, but it was one of those things that mm. just changes mm. the way you see the world, the world mm. you know? And mm. you, you stop feeling safe. And to have that happen to you as a teenager, mm. it was just kind of something that I wanted to work out. Yeah. And I realized then that was what I should really talk about. When I got older, I was like, you should talk about what really made you think about this mm. as opposed to the stuff you were trying to cover it over with. Mm. 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 <laughs> So hopefully yeah, that's why it came out that way. I'm glad that you came out of that alive and here. Thanks. And I can also, at least some small part of me can imagine that that can, must have been quite scary. And yeah. uh, I'm appreciating your kind of creative intuition that somehow this form, the what we might call sci-fi or speculative fiction, mm-hmm as you kind of matured and became more conscious of what was coming through you as a teenager, that this form might actually be a way for you to work that experience while also holding at it at enough distance that you weren't reliving that experience. Um, exactly. That's mm. exactly what happened. Cause what mm. happened to me uh, at 14, I was going through something completely different. That was also very traumatic. And the attack happened uh, two years later 
when mm. I was in the middle of st still working on the draft. And that brought the draft to a halt mm. because what I was doing just didn't work anymore. You know, the, the initially happy-go-lucky idea I had for this crew and this lady, whatever, just died. Mm. And I was like, what am I going? I'm, I'm not interested in this anymore, you know. And that's when that took off. And it was an intuition. But it was also, I think, running into Stephen King at 14 and reading it. Mm. And that kind of blew my mind because I didn't know a novel could do all those things. His, the structure of his novel, the narrative structure was something new to me. Mm. The intensity of the detail and the world building, the way that he captured childhood in, in, in a universal kind of way, even though his childhood had absolutely nothing to do with my childhood. Yeah. <laughs> I had a completely different kind of childhood. I'm in Trinidad and Tobago in the, the early 80s, the late 70s. You know what I mean? uh, but still, there was so much common, and I realized it was the emotional maturity. It was the way that we process things as a kid. And something about that woke up that thought process. And, you know, mm. Mm. about thinking about how you take what you learn and what you experience, you can work through things, but it doesn't have to be the point of the story even. It can just be there. It can just mm. be like seasoning mm. in a pot. Mm. You know? mm. Or like, I, like compost. and like Exactly. Something. That grows something mm. out of it. It was like uh, around that time that I first heard as well, um, a writer is someone who appears in public with their pants down. <laughs> <laughs> You know, oh so God, I was like, hysterical. you're supposed to put some, a little bit, just a little bit of you in there. So it can, yeah. so it can connect with a little bit of real out there and mm. mm. other people, mm. you know, and that was what I was looking for was that mm. how to get mm. to that real spot. Cause I knew I wasn't there yet. Cause I was too young. Mm. I knew that there was something missing from my writing. It wasn't, it didn't feel heavy. It didn't feel real. It didn't mm. feel authentic. Mm. Yeah. But it took years to get there, so you have nothing to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> was this novel, or maybe the question more generally is, when did you when did it when did it start to click for you? When did you start to have an intuition that something of you, something real, was coming through your writing? Definitely, when I finished writing this novel. Mm. When mm. I finished it, I was I was on the OWW and I, I literally posted it as I was going. Sometimes I I was working a full-time job at that time. I was taking care of my sister. Mm. I was taking care of my grandparents, my grandmother by that time, because my grandfather had passed. And I, I had been taking care of him with her, but then he passed. Mm. And w while I was, you know, you had to rush home from work and do views for other people you'd rush home from work and do your own writing and i started to realize you know this is this is coming out almost like i had it in my head mm. this is coming out because mm. i think there's this space when you're learning to write you have this fantastic idea in your head you can see the shape of it it's gorgeous it's beautiful it's like a diamond you put your pen to paper and it comes out like this awful raggedy ass hydrogen <laughs> kind of drawing you're like no that's not what i have that in my head look like what i <laughs> <laughs> and you spend all your time trying to fix this i i think uh, a good friend of mine once called it polishing turds <laughs> uh, the reality is you have to keep writing so mm. i had written a whole bunch of short stories while i was on the OWW, just trying to figure out how to get from get more of the diamond 
less mm. of the weird looking mm. hexagon shape. <laughs> <laughs> and I, when I started doing the novel, I felt it click because I said, this novel is not going to be about what I thought it was going to be about before. Let's talk about something real. Mm. Mm. Um, why is she the way she is? Mm. Because I had a whole other novel that was set in her future. And I was like, but why is she the way she is? Mm. And so this novel ended up, which I published, is really the prequel for the novel I was writing when I was 14. That's so awesome. awesome. (laughs) And it was by the time I was done with it, I was like, this is almost what I had in my head. Mm. Can I tell you I was completely wrong? (laughs) I was completely wrong. I was so impressed with myself. I was done. I thought this was amazing. I was like, I finally have a draft of something I love. I sold the novel probably eight drafts later. Holy cow. Mm. <laughs> substantially different. Let me tell you how substantially. When I finished the novel, it was maybe 300,000 words. When I sold it, it was maybe 116, 114,000 words, somewhere around there. Wow. So more than half of it. Yeah. To... Wow. And the funny thing is... Was that hard to do or was it It just... was not because most of it was just overwriting. Mm. I didn't even lose scenes. I added scenes and ended up with less words because wow. that's how it works. The more you write, the better you get at re- saying stuff faster, mm. more elegantly, mm. less fuss. You have a short, you have a very short story just as in all, just as on the other end of the 300,000 down, even to still 120,000 words is, is not like, that's a, that's, that's a hefty a read. Story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you have a story called The Guardian that I really appreciated. That is, I, I don't know, I didn't count the words, but I mean, it can't be. Oh more my than God, a you thousand, read that. Right? <laughs> it's so yeah. sweet. And it's so, uh, and it says quite a lot with quite a little. So that's why I'm in touch with it right now. Oh, really... thank you for reading that. That's one of the freebies I just have up on my website. I never think anybody reads that crap. And that is literally <laughs> one of the ones I put them up because I'm like, this is cool, but it's not ready. <laughs> To my mind, I'm like, yeah, this is cool. It's not really that good. You can go up on the website. Sorry, I love sorry. that. Well, it's cool <laughs> that you can sort of have a relationship with your work that sort of says, okay, here's here's a thing that I can just kind of pop up and here's yeah. a thing I'm going to spend eight drafts on and exactly, you know, like everything yeah. in between, right? Yeah, it's like, uh, I think I remember reading that when they went through Mark Twain's stuff, they found so much stuff that he'd never published. Mm. And um, Mm. I think the article said so much of it was really bad. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, well, yeah, everything writers do is not gold. There's an awful lot of dross in there. Like Mm. I had a hundred and what, 115,000 worth of gross or whatever in my first novel and the first draft. Mm. And it was the same thing with when I was working on shorts, because I have a whole bunch of shorts inside it. I have a whole novella that I wrote uh, that will never see the light of day. And I love it. I love it so much. And it's a whole big world that I built out. It's crazy. And I'm just, nobody's ever going to see that. That's embarrassing. Well, this I'm experiencing though. This feels unique to me that that you um, you are, but yeah, part of you is recognizes that it's not what you would share with anyone else, and you love it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, that's cool. That's another thing that you have to learn. Uh, the further along you go in the publication journey, is that uh, sometimes you can write a thing just because you love it and you want to have it for yourself. Mm. It's not really. It's not mm. always for mm. the audience. And it's not always going to, um, and it's not that it's not good enough to try to sell, 
because selling is so subjective. An editor can love something that you think is like no big deal, you know, that mm. you didn't labor over. Nobody ever knows what's going to connect to mm. another person. Mm. You, one of the stories I sold the most up until recently, I sold it maybe four or five times, was the Bois. And I wrote that story in an hour and 45 minutes. No kidding. And then I put it aside for a few days and came back and I may have spent another couple of hours all together editing it. And I was like, I like this little thing. I'm going to send it to a competition, which I did. And they were like, it's cute. You can have it back with an honorable mention. And I was like, honorable mention. I've never finished so high in my life. I can definitely sell this. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Turns out I was right. Took a while, but turns out I was right. And um, but I never expected that many people to connect to it. Mm. I the, when I sold it was so long after I wrote it, and but that was the thing that really kicked off the the, the short fiction mm. side of my career because I was never convinced I was a good short fiction writer. I have always up to that I had only written novels from the time I was a child until I was about in my 20s or so, I had only written novels, written maybe 12 altogether, all sorts of romances, chores. <laughs> I, I just went crazy. I love spy stuff, you know? Yeah. I, I grew up watching Airwolf and, and, and running through. <laughs> my shit was not like <laughs> the most sophisticated shit. <laughs> yeah. what, so, was the name, what was the name of the story, the, the one that you, you were talking about that you sold? So the Bois. The Bois. Mm, so Dubois. I call it the Bois because um, several reasons. First of Bois is French for forest. Mm. And uh, in my country, we have a mythological figure we call Papa Bois. Mm. And Papa Bois is a guardian of the forest. Uh, he basically makes sure that uh, humans don't do too much damage to it. And if they do, um, you're a hunter and he gets a hold of you. Well, it's nighty night for you because he mm. is as ruthless as nature is when it's unbound. Mm. Uh, but this particular story got caught up in my mind. I was thinking at the time, because a lot of my short fiction is very much rooted in West Indian life, in West Indian culture, specifically Trinidad and Tobago, uh, and in the mythology that we have that is in influenced by Africa, by India, because we have so many different kinds of people who moved here during um, slavery, during colonialism. Mm. So Papa Bois was one of those myths that kind of changed on its way over from Africa. And I was sitting there thinking about, hey, what if Trinidadians went into space, ended up in a colony with some truly alien aliens that just hung out in forests, but they couldn't, you know, they couldn't really be detected like normal people, you know? Mm. And I was like, so who could detect them then? And for some reason, this, this person popped up in my head and I called, I called her a tante. And in my culture, Tanti is somebody who, well, they're an older lady, first of all, who has the wisdom of the world. But um, so you generally address the older women or anybody who you want to respect who you don't know their name as a Tanti. You'd mm. say, hey, Tanti, how are you going? You know, you know, excuse me, Tanti, can I help you, Tanti? That kind of thing. Uh, but a Tanti is also the village Mako for a lot of people. This is the lady, Mako meaning the lady who knows everybody's business, the lady who pulls the <laughs> curtain when the car drives down the street and then calls a friend and be like, I don't know who that car is, but it's parked outside Beatrice's house. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if her husband's home. <laughs> that, you know, that's what a Mako is. And I said to myself, you know, because 
a lot of people don't realize that West Indian society has um, women basically hold things together. It's been this way since slavery mm. because, well, we didn't have our men around. They would take the men from the families. The women got to keep the kids for as long as, you know, they were not old enough to send out into fields or whatever. So mm. families are very matriarchal. A lot of workplaces here are mostly held up by women, mm. you know. So I said to myself, well, what if this person who could see them was a tanti? But in this place, a tanti is a lawgiver. In this place, a tanti is a sheriff. Mm. The person who delivers the law because they're seen as being fair and unbiased. And this tanti is special because she's a cyborg mm. through no fault of her own. You know, what if she sees these creatures? You know, and so that's basically when I started to realize, oh, there's a lot of stuff I could mine here, man. Because I loved my folk tales growing up. I loved my legends. I loved my histories. I was like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Let's go with this, you know? And it took two hours, and I just liked that image. And in the end, it was just a very short story about love and, and grief and, and, and healing. And it connected with so many people, and I'll always be grateful for that. Because it convinced me, hey, mm. maybe I can do this short story thing after all. <laughs> mm. 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 Love and grief and healing feel like, uh, at least from what I have read of your work, feel like big themes that show up quite a lot. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm. I have never written anything where it love didn't cast a shadow at least. You know, mm. Mm. grief, redemption, betrayal, uh, family dysfunction. Mm. Ask me why. No, don't ask me why. <laughs> Heck of a thing. Uh, I think most people know why. Uh, most of us can say, yeah, we've had those kinds of family interactions. We've ha- oh, we're from that kind of family. You love them. You hate them. You can't imagine your life without them. You definitely want to imagine your life without them. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, but it's, it's what I grew up fascinated with is mm. in people mm. and how different they are uh, depending on who's looking at them mm. and mm. how love and circumstances and society affects us and molds us and shapes us and sometimes twists us and mm. hurts us mm. and boxes us. You know, mm. So, mm. Yeah. Those are definitely mm. things I like to explore. Mm. One thing, uh, speaking of sort of family and, and how it molds us, your story Philia Ero Storge Agape Pragma yeah. is, and I'm saying this, I'm saying this, I'm saying this a bit cheekily. Yeah, thank you. I was like, I'm gonna get these right. I'm gonna get these right. Um, it's a love story, and yes. uh, you know, I'm saying that a bit cheekily because, like, every word in the title is a is it, a type of love, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But and I did it, that on purpose. <laughs> yeah, but it centers. I mean, there is there is the eros love between. Um, um, Eva and Dee, there is yeah. the familial love, but the family is the one I'm in touch with because it's yeah. your, your con- the family construct in this world is fascinating. And, and yeah. if I understand it correctly at its heart, it is the families are born from a kind of, uh, maybe we could call it a symbiosis between a person and uh, an artificial intelligence. Exactly, yeah. Totally which then it. links, which then seems to actually provide some links to the other 
humans and uh, AIs that are yes. part of these extended clans. Is that right? Exactly. That is exactly right. And I mean, I've been building this out since the sun from both sides, which was very obviously a love story. It was the first story. Um, the Philia is sort of like a prequel sequel to that story. Ah, okay. But there are events in Philia that happened before the events in the sun from both sides. Mm. But Philia mm. is very much a story about what happens after the sun mm. from both sides. Mm. <laughs> you know? mm. And um, it was something that I set out to do because I remembered, first of all, Sun was very much inspired by a dream I had after reading a very good romance novel. I read a lot outside my genre nice. <laughs> and romance is one of my favorites when I'm working because there's nothing in here that could possibly impact my work. You know, yeah, I, I live in yeah. utter fear of accidentally reproducing something. From <laughs> <laughs> you know? So when I'm working, I don't read sci-fi you know, mm. I read sci-fi and then I'll go work and in the middle, I'll be reading something else, thrillers, history books, but mostly mm. romance. I just love romance right now because the world is a mess and romance mm. just gives me a happy mm. ending and a safe, cozy space or mm. even a dark space. I don't really care. Just want that happy ending at the end of it. <laughs> you know? And right I, I had read this unbelievably well-crafted, extremely um, dark romance um, but it was about a transcendent love. And I woke up and I had this image. I had had this dream about this woman by the side of a river waiting for her partner to come home. Mm. And I knew that it was this transcendent love and there was so much peace here and that something was going to happen to break that peace. And I woke up mm. and I was like, oh shit, what's going to happen? I will not even lie to you. I woke up, I got dressed, I ate my breakfast as quickly as I could and I went straight to the computer, <laughs> <laughs> plugged it in. and. I started realizing that this was going to be a story that was as connected to those emotions as it was to my country and my culture. I wanted, it just came out of me. Like it just rolled the hell out of me. This is about a future escape for my people, my culture, Trinidad mm. and Tobago, mm. my country, you know, what I see us doing. And I had all these ideas in the back of my head that I'd been building for Lex about why certain things were the way they were in terms of political systems and where the world was. And then I married it to this idea. Okay, so we have machine learning, you know, uh, but it's crap. So far, nobody's really figured out how to not make it biased, yes. you know? Yeah. yeah. And I was like, well, we really love technology in this country. Uh, I think our cell phone, like our cell phone um, uh, adaptivity is like, a hundred and something percent. <laughs> we have more cell phones than citizens. Yeah. <laughs> and we're a very tiny country. And I was like, you know, it would be awesome if we were like some giant project for machine learning. But how could you like get the bias out of it? What if you mm. linked mm. people to it so mm. that they would mm. work in tandem with the AI? Wouldn't they mm. learn better? Mm. And can yeah. I just say real quick what I love about that? One thing that um <clears throat> Because you work with AI a lot in different sort of yeah. forms in your in your books, and yeah. you know one of the tropes of AI is the sort of like indomitable kind of all-consuming sort of unstoppable force that just like you humanity know. kind of ekes the living out in the shadows of it, right? And yeah, you you there, you sort of kind of leaned into the like, what about this more symbiotic like human machine partnership? Exactly, and, and there is also a pure AI civilization in this setting, and and I was so struck by just how you've inverted that trope uh, and gone like, oh, actually, it 
in a way, it's the pure AI who's sort of eking out a living in the kind yes. of shadows of on, the successful on the fringes, civilization. Yeah. On the fringes, because they're, they're trying to rely on incomplete knowledge. Because if, if, if you don't give them the right tools, if you don't give them help, what is an AI? It's just an algorithm with no direction. Yeah. It's, yeah, all it's, it's only can kind of output whatever yes. it's inputting. Exactly. So that was my thought process. When I came up with this, I was like, if everybody was connected to this thing, and you give them a set of protocols and they start to be connected to each other, you're going to have a very different kind of society, mm. probably mm. one where people value each other more than you would expect. Mm. And I wanted to create this idea of, and that respect would extend itself to mm. the AIs that mm. are part of you now. They're not just an algorithm somewhere. Mm. They're part of you. And they're learning so fast from you now. They have become artificial intelligence. They're not machines learning anymore. They are stepping out on their own. And they're so, entities. Yeah. Exactly. And so that, that kind of came back to why I call them brother, sister, sibling. Because in my society, as across much of African societies, um, you will call someone brother or sister. Mm. You know, And then I wanted to acknowledge... Um, people who don't identify on that spectrum and those AIs that didn't identify. Because of course, not every AI is going to feel like they're a he or a she. What the heck? Yes. They're an AI. Yes. So yes. those refer to themselves as siblings. Mm. Mm. And so whenever you came across one of the Kairi, which is this culture that has this bonded AI civilization, they referred to each person they encountered as brother, sister, sibling, and then the human name. Because mm. mm. you're talking to two people. You're always talking mm. to two people. So you always give them that respect that you're talking to two people. Right. And and, and like, for instance, what, what took me a while to, to grok as I was reading is that you'd have like, uh, you know, someone uh, like a female human with, yes. a, with a prefix brother. Exactly. exactly. Brother Monica. And I was exactly. like, wait, what? Because the, oh, the AI, cause the might AI is brother. And exactly. Yeah. And it was like, I was like, oh, it's just like really fun, really fun to like kind of dig into that. Yeah. I don't, I definitely feel like gender roles and gender identity. Um, I'm from a very traditional society. We don't really like to question that stuff. We don't really like to talk about that stuff. But it is my hope that we will get to the point where we can just let people be themselves. Like, yeah. why is it a problem to let people identify the way they want to identify? Why is yeah. this a problem? Because you have a box you'd rather they fit into. Why does this matter? Mm. Why does your need to have mm, a mm, box for mm, someone mm. matter more than how they feel about themselves, yeah. you know? So there's we have a, great, a lot of- Just as yeah. a quick aside, since, you're, since you read so widely, there's a book by, um, a recent book that just came out by the Dutch primatologist Franz de Waal called Different. Mm. And, it's a, mm. and it's an exploration through his field studies of chimpanzees and bonobos, which are our- uh, closest living genetic relatives and culturally chimps and bonobos, although they look quite a lot alike are quite different. Oh yeah. Uh, but he's yeah. exploring the, the question of what, of what is gender and how is gender unique and distinct from biological sex and where do they overlap and where do they diverge? And, and there's a lot of really interesting and provocative stuff in there, but one of his simple like insights is like, look, it's just, it's just real. It's just in nature that there are uh, a number of bonobos and a number of chimpanzees who are gender nonconforming. It's just exactly. it's just real. It's just a thing. This it's not a majority thing, but it's a thing. It's and a thing. like, so can we stop pretending that it's not a thing? That, <laughs> and like, that is, can that we is talk so, about it? <laughs> I have made a note of this book just in case you're wondering. 
<laughs> but that is definitely one of the arguments I, I have sometimes, you know, because I have conservative leaning family and friends, of course, like I said, the society is very conservative, but it's mm. also very tolerant. Mm. So there's a there's it's not like we're a society that that um attacks people, but we do have that horrible thing where we feel offended if someone is being openly themselves and mm. they're clearly gay or gender non-conforming. There are people who take offense to that mm. and they start talking about God and religion and stuff. And I always say, you point me to the passage that does not refer to priests that says that God has a problem with this. Because he was talking about priests being with each other in Deuteronomy. And I have scored that book. And other than that, he hasn't got one thing to say. <laughs> Be- and, and that's very odd because he was dealing with the Romans and they would screw anything. That- <laughs> so if God had a problem with it, I think Jesus would have said something on the mount. But you know what he has talked about? Rich people. <laughs> He spent a lot of time on the people <laughs> and fake priests mm, mm, and mm. religious people who think that getting rich is part of their job. Yeah, wow. but we skip over all of that <laughs> and we go straight to this made-up version of Sodom and Gomorrah that has yeah. no basis, in fact, if you read King James. But don't worry, we have 17 different versions of the Bibles that rewrites that whole thing so that we can have a basis for our claims that it was the homosexuality that caused Jesus to drop this on them. Mm, mm, mm. Oh, heck no. Mm. I'm sorry. First off, religion doesn't support it. And nature does. Mm. So if, mm. if, if, if people who are gender non-conforming, queer, whatever, are a mistake, then why are there two penguins in New York who are just really cool with each other in all the ways? <laughs> you know? Why are there, what, 15, 1,600 different species that display the yeah. exact same behavior, tendencies, whatever? It's because it's part of nature. Get over it's part, it. Exactly, yeah. And, and, we are humans. Love yeah. each other. That's mm. all you really need. <laughs> mm. Ah, that was awesome. Thanks, Rhonda. <laughs> so that was just part of it going in. I was like, this is the future I want. My yeah, country. well, and I and I love how it comes through in in Philia. Like there is a uh, a part of me reading that was like, I want to live in that future. I want to like, I want to have an an awesome AI that I yeah, can commune that. with, and this it's extended clan of uh, siblings that multi generational. You know, like it was just a really uh, beautiful rendering. Yeah. And they come feels, together to hmm, protect each other. To protect each other, yeah. And and you know. And I was like, yeah, the, the fear that people have from them, this is my own thing, the fear that people have of the sibling army, as they call it, is because they do not understand how it operates. So all they see is how how it behaves. How powerful when, it is. When you yeah. attack it and how powerful it is. And they don't really understand that this is, this is a last resort thing, but it's something that they came to after years of making mm. mistakes. And that is mm. what Philae is also about. It's mm. about how when you make horrible mistakes or you do things that are contrary to the the, the person you would like to be, uh, you have redemption is another big theme for me. And mm. this story was about trying to actually make amends. Mm. And, you know, a lot of my work is probably about that as well. Mm. Let's definitely the sequel, stuff like that. Mm. Chance yet to finish. Sorry, publishers. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> working and working. <laughs> <laughs> right now, as we're having this conversation, she's also working on it. We <laughs> It's, 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 <laughs> tapping up the keys in the background. That's right. 
Um, I wonder, I'm, I'm kind of call, like curious if there's either from Philia or from another story that maybe evokes some of these themes of redemption and healing and, and grief oh. that we've been playing with. Is there something you've brought that maybe we could? Yeah. Um, let me think about that. Where could I go? Where could I go? I could definitely read from Philia if you'd like. I, I certainly <laughs> would like. Yeah. My, my sister made a suggestion to me. And oh. I wasn't going to take her up on it because I was like, but that's so far down in the story. You know, maybe people will think, you know, it's too far down in the story. But it fits in what we're talking about. Yeah. And it's the scene that matters in terms of that redemption, I think. So mm. And what I like you. just as a little extra context while you're finding it on your computer is that the, the, the structure of the story, which toggles... How, what what are you now then before right like those are the, the three time periods in the story yes. so 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 there's a way in which it's it's sort of structured non linearly anyway exactly. so I think that I think we can kind of dip in and and still have exactly have an experience. exactly it's definitely that's how I I set out to do these these three time periods because I felt like they're telling one really big story yeah you know it's it's a way in which your your past comes back in and folds in on your present sometimes. It's the consequences that make redemption or no redemption the choice, isn't it? Mm. That gets your life usually turns out like that. Mm. I feel like there are moments in your life when you can literally say, make a choice to have shown that you've learned from the mistakes you made in the past. Mm. Or you just continue the way you do because you don't want to, because it's too hard, because humans make this choice all the time. But I wanted to show someone making a choice, learning from a horrible, horrible thing that they did because they felt they had to in the moment. But since then, they've learned better. Mm. Yeah? Mm. So mm. this is the part where Eva basically goes home and they're having uh, coming together because my political system, obviously, with these people connected now in this manner, um, the idea of having a political party or one leader is kind of ridiculous. It doesn't fit. So everybody has this one man, one vote, which is our current political um, system, by the way, one man, one vote. And I thought about taking that to the very end of it. One man, one vote, but on all things. Because mm. we have instantaneous mm. understanding mm. of it. Mm -hmm. When something comes up, we all know it has come up. There's no excuse to say, oh, I didn't know about that. Because I was of kind of the AI network connecting exactly. everyone. Yeah. So Mami is at the heart of this. Mami is the arc, is like the the collective intelligence of all these AIs and all these humans. And she's at the heart of this. And so at any point in time, she can make everybody fully aware of anything that is an issue. And so the Kyrie don't go to war just like that. They need everybody to be okay with it because mm. they understand that what they're risking is every single person's life, consciousness, every AI and every human is going to be part of this. They're going to know what happens. They're going to be there for what happens. So everybody has to be okay with it. Mm -hmm. And a horrible thing has happened for them, which is to say they've lost people in an attack. So this is one of the few times when they will consider this as an option. And so they come together, everybody comes together to have what they call a war parliament, where, where if you can't make it physically, you're going to make it virtually. And uh, I think I'll just start the reading for there. So that's the place I'm going to start. It's called, uh, this section is called Agape. And the 
section begins with in now, the timeline now. The parliament was a larger replica of the last building that had housed the original Kairi parliament. Before the wars and the erosion of the islands beneath rising oceans forced her people from their home. Then, as now, it was nicknamed the Red House. And the physical one on New Kairi was vast enough to hold half of the continent's citizens at any one time in the public galleries. This Red House was for those occasions when all citizens were required to attend the vote. Wherever siblings were, whatever they were doing, they would find a safe place to go into upload mode and citizens would find themselves under the maroon colonnades and high ceilings of the old colonial architecture, now also outfitted with expanses of arched windows that gave gorgeous views of the large parks and silently patrolling guardians that surrounded the parliament. Cousins she hadn't seen in years hugged her as she entered the Gomez family box. Uncles and tanties nodded hello or gave her a smile depending on the state of their relations. Sibling Beryl air kissed her cheek and remarked in the Gomez family chat room how her husband must be treating her good because she was looking healthy. Eva rolled her eyes at the veiled insult and moved on to hugging her daughter. For a moment, she wished for these easy, charming presents, but only primates whose parents were both Kyrie could vote in war parliaments. Not that cheerful moments with her family could do much to dispel the somber dark mood that hung over the Red House today. Nobody asked her where sister was, despite her obvious absence from the flock of representative drones floating above every citizen in their tiered galleries. The devastation of forced separation from your sibling was not something anyone would ever refer to easily in polite conversation. How are you? Did you see sister? Brother Monica's words scrolled past in a private chat she'd opened, preferring not to sign and keep their conversation private from the rest of the family. Eva thought back, I have, she's fine for now, but the situation is complicated. She raised her eyebrows. Eh? Uh -huh. I can't talk about it yet. Mom, oh gosh, man. So it is when you have a admiral for a mother. Brother Monica wrinkled her nose at her as a small form barreled into Eva's legs. Granny, granny! She picked up her grandson and tweaked his nose before having him. You can't be running like that in the government place, Brother Ellis. Brother Monica chided in the general chat. Where Brother James and sibling Nelson? Eva asked as Ellis's brother drifted over from the line of waiting sibling dreams to hover protectively above their charge. Somewhere over so, Brother Monica waved a hand. They're on their way back. They're sitting with us. Her daughter's husbands had the choice to sit with their own family or hers, but custom led to most people sitting with their larger, more connected family. And few were more connected than the Gomez clan. She was handing her grandson back to his mother, ignoring the sharp emotion that flooded her at not being able to feel his sweet kiss on her cheek before he went, when a private chat opened and text scrolled across her vision. You realize what you risk with that little stunt? Anonymous said. Please, we know each other well, brother, but you were hoping I would do that. You were supposed to figure out what was in there, then come to us with what you found. Anger flashed through her. Why? You weren't going to tell me anything if she hadn't locked herself away. You would have deleted her face. A pause. Eva, remember your duty. Well, fuck you. You don't get to tell me about duty. She's my sister. It's a weapon. Imagine what could have happened if it got into your all-up shell. It didn't. But that's not your real worry. Another pause. She could almost see his frown as he tried to come up with a different line of attack. 
Nothing you say will change my mind. You know what I found. You would have played back that mission once I vacated the upshell. Don't do this, Eva. I have to. She cast her eyes over the crowd as a banner went up in the chat rooms, announcing the caretaker's imminent arrival. People started going to their seats to await the anthem. Disposed to who we are. It's time to replace this favor, Simongal. Damn it, Eva, you can't be serious. Let me take point. I can't do that. If you do, it's all on me. Think how easy that makes things. They want me anyway. I'm a balm to their open wound. If you fail, it could hurt us all. You're the next caretaker. The cursor blinked a few times. I wouldn't want anything to happen to you. I won't fail. Eva, trust me, I can do this. And after this, our debts are settled. The cursor blinked in and out like slow breaths. All right. Thank you, she said. The chat room closed and she went to stand at her seat. All the primarchs had just attended the funerals for their murdered citizens, so there was none of the usual pomp and circumstance. Instead, the nine caretakers entered the parliament in single file, stood at attention during the anthem, and then took their chairs facing the public galleries. The caretaker chair started with a summary of the situation, updating the primarchs on the protectorate's response. A universal brief had been forwarded to every citizen before the parliament to ensure an informed vote. She jiggled her left leg as she waited, going over her decision and stealing herself for the inevitable reaction. She scanned the tallies from her family which she had a responsibility to report to the caretakers. They wanted war. It was to be expected. The Kairi protectorate did not suffer aggression. Clan heads usually stuck with the majority and given the circumstances, she knew that would lead to a yes vote. When her time came, and the display for yes or no projected above her chair, she resolutely pressed her hand against the no. She could see the ripple effect of her vote sweep the entire chamber like stalks of grass before a great wind. What are you doing? Mom? You out of your mind, Sister Eva? Her family's shocked questions popped up too fast to pay attention. The gravity of what she had done would divide her family further. A no vote from anyone during a war parliament was the end of the process. The Kairi did not make war unless every clan agreed because the burden of that choice would fall on them all. There has been a no vote, Griffith announced after bringing the hall to order with a few taps of his gavel on the arm of his chair. The dissenting clan will provide their reasoning. I think I'll stop there. <laughs> mm. 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 Yeah, I mean, there's so many, there's so much happening in there. There's the the familial relationships, there's the sort of political gamesmanship, yeah. there's the the sort of who has not only formal authority to vote and decide, but also who has informal authority to kind of influence their family and clans. And yeah, exactly. And, and if, uh, if for folks who haven't read the story, like Eva is a war hero, essentially, right? Yes, so essentially. For, for her to vote no on war is... A it's a tremendous, tremendous choice. Yeah, yeah, it's a tremendous choice. It's a spanner in the works. It's a shock, and it's made even more shocking because, of course, her sister is one of the people who have been attacked. It's yeah. one of the AIs that have been caught up in the attack. Her sister is, is is very much a part of this. So, the last person on earth they would expect to say, "Let's not go to war," is the person who has been harmed by what has happened. Yeah. And in the yeah. Kyrie society to be 
severed from, and you allude to this in the piece, yes, but exactly. to be severed from your symbiotic AI, AI partner is, is quite, quite painful. It's quite painful on both sides. You know, mm. I, I make a very small reference in the story to an AI who has lost his partner as well and is only himself for the moment. You know. Yeah, yeah. There's like, and the, and the the name it was like something self, right? Like yes. that was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was like it happens. It's just part of life, you know. But there is that dichotomy where, even though this is a time in which people live very long, because interstellar travel has led to changes and in, in, in genetic changes that we put in place to allow interstellar travel to be mm-hmm. less damaging to the human body, mm-hmm. and that you know prolonged our life. Um, these are still immensely long-lived beings their consciousness has no reason to leave they're always going to be within mommy so they're essentially almost immortal for all intents and purposes mm. and so they're going to have their siblings die on them mm. you know mm. and that's that's it's it's stuff that really excites me about where i'm going with the story how we talk about that what it means mm. for um to have a a life partnership with someone who will always, 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 always have part of you, Mm. you know? Mm. Does that Mm. mean you're immortal too? Because, you know, as they say, you're only gone when no one speaks of you anymore. Mm. You know? Mm. And that was one of those things that I think about when I Mm. look at the story. But hey, let me don't get into the things that are not written yet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, there's... I learned recently about a concept called, um, so we all have a lifespan right now, us as people living on planet earth in this moment in our history. And, you know, there's like, I forget what the exact numbers are, but you know, men on average live, you know, 75 years and women on average live 80 or something kind of spread across, you know, very general statistics. Um, but there's also something called a memory span, which is, um, about the equivalent of two generations in either direct- direction on average. So yeah. you have your uh, parents uh, and grandparents who remember you until they're gone. So you might be, well, you're a child uh, age three or four, have a 94-year-old person who holds you and their lifespan. Exactly. And then in the same direction, your kids and grandkids or your descendants uh, also remember you and what what you're and most of us once that grandchild is gone like the memory span is gone yeah which can I be think I agree with that. Yeah. yeah it can be quite I, uh, uh when you touch into that it's like wow there's a real existential charge to that but you're playing you're playing with that really actively yes. you're playing with that really actively and i wonder you said that's exciting what's exciting for you to play with that it's the idea that we are maybe essentially our consciousness and our memories you know we are what people take away of us essentially i mean memories tend to be very positive things even when we have bad interactions with people it's proven the longer they're gone the more we only remember the positive interactions you Mm. know if once Mm. we love that individual we tend to remember the positive interactions and um this is a society where we very much care about our ancestors because so much of the society came from cultures where originally ancestors are venerated african cultures eastern cultures we venerate our ancestors we have syrians we have italians you know and Mm. Mm. amongst many others so we have a surprisingly long memory of ancestors mm. to my mind mm. it's mm. it's more than the two generations yeah. Yeah. i was told stories of my great grandmother who mm. i never met mm. 
and who mm. was born on the slave plantation that her mother worked on, I think, as a slave. Mm. You know, I so I know her name. I know who she was. I know what kind of person she was. And my grandmother brought her here to live the last years of her life. So my mother knew her. My wow. all of my grandmother's children knew somebody who grew up on a plantation. You know, mm. and. I mean, that both speaks to how short that time really is in terms of historical past and also to how long the human memory is because I was told these stories of her by my mother mm. and then mm. my grandmother, mm. you know? And I tell stories about my grandmother to everyone who will listen because she was a remarkable woman. <laughs> I love to get love my mom to that, you know? And I'll probably be telling stories about her. Like part of the reason that philia means so much to me and why I'm so honored and surprised and humbled and joyous that this is the story that the Sturgeon Award um, nomination has come in for is precisely because I put so much of my own culture and my own family and mm. um, things that I'm thinking about that are very personal to me into that story. And one of those things was really how West Indian people approach this effortlessly we have this this keeping of the guard this keeping of the mm. memories this passing it on mm. we are very much oral people we don't tend to write things down and that's kind of probably calls back to the oral storytelling traditions mm. in africa but it yeah most of what we do is we tell stories to each other and this is a big thing i think trinidadians are some of the best storytellers on the planet because we will tell you a story about nothing in particular. And it's just normal for an ordinary person just standing on the side of it can just give you a story about just about anything. <laughs> oh, so I've always awesome. felt like that's that's precisely because we tell each other stories all the time mm. about mm. our past, about our family. And do you see your work of kind of imaginal future yeah. storytelling as part of that lineage? Yeah, really I do. I really, really do. Mm. I've very consciously thought about, you know, my place in that long line of, of storytelling, but I was like, I want to write it down. Mm. I want to put it in places mm. where it will be remembered because it's mm. so frustrating sometimes when you do go to the library to realize how much stuff has been lost mm. because um, colonialism didn't want to preserve it because they didn't see it as valuable to preserve the, the identity and the work of other cultures. The reason we keep everything verbal and oral is because we were forbidden to write it down. Mm. We were prevented from being taught language and writing. So we, 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 we were brought here without even knowing the language ourselves. So this became the way that we passed things on. And I think that's why it's so much easier for us and why, to me, it feels like we we have a longer period of remembering mm. things. It goes mm. back further for the average citizen. It yeah. goes back a little further, you know, than you would expect yeah. from a lot of cultures. It's beautiful. At the risk of kind of um, being too sort of silver liney here, like I I'm in touch with the sort of, what do I want to say? There's a kind of like the, the tragedy of a culture that are, decides what to preserve and what not to sort of say to like we're gonna decide that you can't learn to read because we want control or we want wealth or we want like whatever the driving motives of that colonial colonial culture was and is the sort of tragedy of that is is it um 
deprives all of us of a certain richness and beauty but then the like silver lining the beauty the sort of like unexpected life force of a cult of the culture that's that the that colonialism is attempting to absorb to go like you we will find a way for us to keep this and as a result we actually have emerged with this capacity for we have a longer memory span than y'all basically like we because we learn that we can carry this for each other and it's not just what's in the library that's that matters it's what's in our hearts and our minds that matters and i just think that's really yeah beautiful byproduct of a pretty awful reality yeah Um, i agree with that and we also have the thing where we hide it in our art mm, so you know mm. i mean it's the same thing everywhere slavery was this is this is nothing new we hide it Mm. in our art calypso which is one of our exports um was basically born out of singers who would walk through the fields and sing to the slaves what news they had. Mm. And they would sing mm. to the slaves of important things, but disguised mm. so that the slave masters and the overseers wouldn't be aware of the fact that what they were singing of was, you know, the plant of socks. That guy's the worst this shit is happening at the next plantation. What about revolution? You know, stuff like that. And they would they would sing mm. in the fields. And mm. then when slavery came to an end during the emancipation era, uh, those people became chanterelles. They would go and they would sing of the government. They would sing of the British government. They would sing of Creole people. They would sing of the rich and they would slam these people. They would slam their, their you know, their horrible policies and, and the evil that they did. You know, and they became fully aware of this at that point. And so there was this huge campaign to call Calypso and the steel pan movement that the the invention of this this instrument that often accompanied them, the tambu bamboo that often accompanied them, all of these elements of our culture were banned. You know, mm-hmm. this can't be carrying on because they knew fully well what it was. It was a record of their wrongdoing and it was a call to arms for people who mm. wanted to fight mm. that wrongdoing in a meaningful mm. way, you know, mm. and we resisted sometimes physically, sometimes, you know, with blood, you know, mm. to preserve these art forms, which mm. continue to do that to this day. Like if you go to a Calypso tent, which sadly every year, there are fewer and fewer of them. But if you listen to the Calypsos at carnival time that come through, what distinguishes it from Soka, which is our celebration music, uh, Calypso is about, the political climate, the news mm. of the day, the mm. the social topics that matter, you know, the issues that people want to address is very much the difference. You know, Soka can do these things, but it's not really for that. Mm. It's more about, you know, the movement and the rhythm and the preservation of our life force and our joy in life. Mm. But Calypso can do all of these things and still be also a record. So when you go to like the West Indian Library and you look up um, history, a lot of that history can be recorded in the calypsos of the time. Oh, that's so amazing. <laughs> wow. So if you could imagine, we're coming to the sort of the last few minutes of our time together, but if um, a descendant of you, you or your family line, two, three, four, five generations from now were to, to pick up some of your work and what you're attempting to capture on record, like what... What's your hope or aspiration or wish for those future future humans who might uh, descend from the lineage that you're participating in right now? 
my hope is that first off, forgive me for the mistakes I made in mm. that stuff. Mm. I was naive <laughs> and young, and we didn't. We we were not as developed and sophisticated as we thought. <laughs> You're further along than I am, and that's good. <laughs> the second thing I would hope, uh, I would hope it's in a world where they're accepted. I would hope it's in a world where they look back and they see these painful occurrences, like making war on people who have not made any kind of war mm. on you first, mm. like mm. attacking others because they are different from you, either because of their skin tone, their religion, or the, who they choose to love and how they choose to love people would be a thing of the past, would not be something that, you know, they would fully understand it like, oh, they used to do that. Ooh. The way we said, oh, Aztecs used to rip the hearts out of people's chests. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I would hope that that's, that's the will they're living for. But I would also hope that they would look back on this time and see a people who were resilient in the face of many difficulties, who were joyous in the face of many tragedies, who were celebrated in the face of many disappointments mm -hmm. and who worked, hopefully, we're such a young nation, and this is, after all, mm -hmm. such a young phase of history. I mean, democracy is not that old. And no. So it's no surprise that we have so many big challenges against them. I hope people remember that. It's very young democracy, and we can lose it at any time because mm -hmm. of that. We're more familiar with authoritarianism and monarchies mm -hmm. and, 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 and jingoism and propaganda and all of this mm -hmm. stuff, fascism, than we are with democracy, true democracy. But I hope that by that time, um, they would be living in a society that would be like that. And I don't think we'll be without problems because we're human beings and we make enough problems as we do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. God, do I hope that yeah. at the end of all of that, they're better people because we've managed to do that, haven't we? As we mm. moved ahead, we did become better people. Mm. We raised more people out of poverty than mm. in it as we went along. And all I'm praying for is that at this difficult moment in history, we do not start taking steps backward because we're scared to be our best selves. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you, Rhonda. Um, <laughs> ah, there's so much more I want to say, but maybe uh, <clears throat> I'll just ask to invite you, if people who are hearing you read and speak today want to read more or hear more, where should they go? Uh, yeah. So uh, first off, I have a, a website, rsagarcia.com, uh, which has the story you like, The Guardian, <laughs> as yeah. well as links to a lot of my other work, links to where you can buy it. And usually when I remember, I update my blog <laughs> so, you can, nice. so you can find out what's coming up and where I'll be appearing. Um, I also have a couple of things coming out this year they can look out for. I'm in two anthologies this year. One is Bridge to Elsewhere Anthology, uh, where I will have a story from the Lex Talionis universe. It's nice. the only thing that's come out from the Lex Talionis universe since I finished the first book. So it's my apology to the fans. I am definitely writing the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm also in the Death in the Mouth Anthology, which is an anthology um, of horror from um, marginalized people. Um, mm. The story in there is an original story called uh, uh, Bonfire in the Night. And uh, again, it calls back to um, my Caribbean culture because it's about a girl who can't quite get rid of a jumbi, which is uh, what we call an evil spirit here. Mm. Uh, but slightly, slightly different. It's my version of a jumbi, not the traditional understanding yeah. of a jumbi. Yeah. You know? And um, I'm always hanging out on Twitter at RSA Garcia. So not much of a Facebook person, but you can probably find me on Twitter. <laughs> All right. Brilliant. Well, um, I, I invited you. If, did you bring a short piece to close us out with or? Yeah. yeah. 
I'll okay. So definitely. I'll tee you up, tee you up for that in a second, but I just say, um, I want to personally thank you for creating, I, Ursula K. Le Guin said something to the effect of like, we can't imagine a thing ending until we imagine it ending, you know? Yes. So, so people used to think the rights of Kings were, were exactly. you know, immortal until suddenly they weren't. And I and, love repeating that to everybody who tells me, well, what can you do? Cause yeah. trust me, I hear that a lot from my fellow citizens and Ursula is one of my favorite writers and as a person, even more than her work, I wish I'd read more of her work, but there wasn't yeah. a lot of it at my library growing up. But as how the work I did read, was so impressive and I felt such kinship to it. And then as a person, I was like, this lady and my grandmother and me could have talked for hours. Yes, and that was yes. one of my favorite sayings from her. I, I literally told someone who told me once in a while, what can we do about this situation? It can't change. And I was like, why can't it change? We got rid of Kings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you like, I feel like you are carrying a, a similar torch to the torch that she carried in her lifetime of imagining possible futures that are both deeply familiar in ways, but also uh, invite in totally new possibilities for governance, for family, for identity, for economy. And I just, it's really, really beautiful. I really hope that that that's what I'm doing because it's what I'm trying to do, but you know, you never know how well you're actually doing, but if you see For what it's worth, data point of one here. That's what I will with. take data point of one. Okay. <laughs> it's better Great. than data point of, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Well, okay. So, so I'd love for you to close us out last word with, with what you, whatever you brought to, to read. Yeah. Close us. So what I actually brought was one of my current favorite songs um, from one of my sister and I's favorite artists, which is Florence and the Machine. Mm. And mm. I felt like the lyrics of her, her new song, King, uh, reflect so much of what it is I struggle with in my work. Mm. What I'm talking about when it comes to women in particular, mm. you know, because I don't just write about women, but I feel like I write about women. <laughs> you know? And um, I just wanted to read those lyrics because she has such a remarkable voice. Sometimes people miss out on what she's saying. Mm. And so it begins We argue in the kitchen about whether to have children, about the world ending, and the scale of my ambition. And how much is art really worth? The very thing you're best at is the thing that hurts the most. But you need your rotten heart, your dazzling pain, like diamond rings. You need to go to war, to find material, to sing. I am no mother. I am no bride. I am a king. I need my golden crown of sorrow, my bloody sword to swing my empty halls to echo with grand self-mythology. I am no mother. I am no bride. I am a king. I am no mother. I am no bride. I am a king. But a woman is a changeling, always shifting shape. Just when you think you have it figured out, something new begins to take. What strange claws are these scratching at my skin? I never knew my killer would be coming from within. I am no mother. I am no bride. I am a king. I am no mother. I am no bride. I am king. Mm. Mm. Ah, thank you, Rhonda. 
<laughs> that was so wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I can't yeah. believe the time went by that fast. <laughs> it really went very, very quickly. Uh, so joy to be with you. Thank you for sharing it was, your, yes, it really and was. your wisdom and your playfulness. And, uh, and thanks to everyone listening in. I trust that this will find its way to people who need it. It certainly was some medicine for my soul today. So thank you. I hope so. And thank you so much for asking such insightful, thoughtful questions. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find The Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others. Consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep this show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.